This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. So welcome, Mark. This is the Naked Adult podcast. How are you feeling? How's it going? Uh, I'm feeling good. Drinking coffee. Just had my lunch. Um, enjoying the day. Been uh, writing on queer theory, the topic of queer theory, um, for my course. Um, quite interesting topic, but that's what I've been up to. Uh, how are you doing? Good. Uh, I'm also busy with the finals at the moment, but you know, just feeling good. What What are the topics that you said that you were writing on for queer theory? Uh, well, uh, this time I was. Um, um, I mean, I can. We're, we're instructed to uh, choose a specific phenomenon that exists uh, within the discussed uh, sphere, and I think it's not just a question of like what topics. Uh, we've been discussing, I think it's easier to say what thinkers we've been discussing and here uh, we've been, we discussed uh, Foucault, uh, Rubin, Butler, um, basically anyone significant who wrote something about queer theory. Um, I think uh, majority of them are interesting people, but in the end of the day, I think the most important, the fu most fundamental one is Foucault. I am focusing my work on uh, Foucault and uh, uh, Gail Rubin, and the topic I'm uh, doing currently is the uh, same-sex marriage in Russian Federation in the 21st century. That's good to know. How's it going so far? Do you think you're getting somewhere? Uh, well, I mean, um, it, of course, I would say if I'm taking the idea of uh, me focusing on the theor uh, theoretical writings of Foucault and Rubin, of course, I can apply them to the topic that I'm discussing. But uh, if um, we're discussing, if we're choosing the Russian Federation in the 21st century, um, you know, it's relatively hard to apply uh, those theory, uh, theories. Because at the end of the day, it's a very challenging topic, uh, especially in a country where, you know, there is legal and public prohibitions. Uh, so there is constraints. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a crime. Uh, you cannot basically, uh, be homosexual or lesbian or and I think the best way to uh, speak about it is that you can only be heterosexual in official union hence married and for the reason not even of love but for recreation uh, so it's the idea that religious institution put in us and we have to follow those uh, norms and politically wise, you know, uh, of course, on political level, the uh, minorities are not accepted as organization. They simply, they, they can exist, of course, but, you know, on official level, there is no such organization. Uh, and uh, coming out, if you can use this term uh, here, 
uh, in terms of uh, you can come out to your friends, to colleagues or whatever, you will face a lot of restrictions, not even legally speaking, but mainly you can lose your job, you can lose uh, your uh, friends, uh, family can turn away from you. And there have been a couple of examples um, uh, which, which happened um, uh, live, you know, in, in Russian Federation a while ago, uh, but um, yeah, they, they showed what happens even if you have an influential um, you know job if you're a politic and what happens to you if you suddenly declare that well you know I, I I'm this I'm deviating from the norm that was stated by the nation um, and you'll be able to see straight away that they've been prosecution in terms of the next day there were no news about it like the the person loses the job the person has to move to a different country because uh, straight away one faces danger and so on. So it's a challenging topic to discuss. You can of course apply theories, but in the end of the day, the idea is how can this regime of power be, uh, you know, influenced? Can it can it be changed? Can it be changed? And uh, is there a possibility for something better? And um, there is there is no right or wrong answer because it can go in both axes. You know, you can. Um, uh, fight against the repression, but at the same time, uh, the public is so entrenched that um, it, in this uh, homophobic, you know, discourse that it can just worsen. Uh, the situation can become even more hostile, and, and uh, unfortunately, nothing is going to come out. Nothing good is going to come out of it. But at the same time, there is a possibility for the situation to actually become better because we're letting the uh, we're letting specific group, groups of people speak about how this, how, for example, being homosexual is bad, because, you know, there is only one way of, uh, there's only one way of being, it's being heterosexual, and it's wrong straight away fundamentally when a heterosexual is speaking about how it is bad to be homosexual when, you know, you don't know what it is. So, uh, um, of course, if we allow minorities to speak for themselves and describe their way of being, uh, I believe, for example, the public uh, can accept it to a certain degree. But the problem is that uh, the public being, uh, how to say, it, exposed to all those negative information, to all of those legal prohibitions, and to um, everything which comes from those influential spheres, such as politics, religious, uh, medical institutions, that they see no, no, uh, they see, they don't see any other way. So that that's the problem, which is horrible. But uh, we'll we will see how it will uh, go from that point. Definitely, I feel like influence has become a symptom in the civilization, and like how hierarchy is still quite fundamental to the existence of society in general. And so how do we treat this kind of symptom within a civilization? We take a look at psychoanalysis. And so there's a lot of kinds of, you know, psychoanalytic psychotherapies. So there's a lot of um, different ways that the psychotherapeutic relationship works with. So which one do you see more convinced of as an effective psychotherapeutic, you know, healing system? Well, um, th that's, that's a good question. I mean, look, um, 
first of all, I want to say that the, so when you mentioned the sexual hierarchy, this this is the term that is very important, to be honest, and is mentioned uh, by Ruben, one of the theories, because that that's what we that, that's how it actually works. Because uh, if you look at the top of the pyramid, there is only one one possible um, option to be there. What do you think this option is? In, if we're speaking, in, in, for example, about Russian Federation in this case, and the same was in majority of Western uh, cultures, uh, not a, not so long ago, to be fair, the repression stopped uh, recently. So, question being about hierarchy. Yeah, you're speaking about sexual hierarchy because you can imagine it's a pyramid. So, who do you think uh, is at the top of this pyramid? Because I'll give you a hint. It's only one option that is there. Yeah, it's the it's the ruling power, it's the government. Well, I mean, in terms of when we speak about sexual hierarchy here, I'm more referring to um, at the top of the pyramid, there would be the uh, heterosexual married couples, which exist for procreation. And of course, you said the right thing. It's the ruling powers, the regime that identifies uh, who is at the top, who is at the bottom. And at the bottom, we can take that. Uh, then there's the minorities, and then there is all those who have uh, specific fetishes. But I'm not going to even go into this sphere because um, the the best way to fight against those sexual hierarchies is not to uh, uh, is to try to be uh, enlightened and uh, accepting in terms of uh, the idea that there is not uh, there is no uniformal norm that is dictated by the by, by any sphere there's many different influential spheres but it's not just one norm uh, and as soon as you start to accept it that uh, heterosexual for example uh, relationship um, is one of the types of the relationship that you can be in then suddenly everything becomes much easier but uh, that's a question of labels and how it operate and how they operate uh, in terms of returning to your main question of uh, what the uh, psychotherapies that you can apply to i think um it's not just the psychotherapy because uh, when you're referring to psychotherapy do you mean one-on-one -on -one? psychotherapy the uh, analyst uh, and the therapist Primarily, yes. Expensive. What, leisure activity or? What? It's an expensive leisure activity or what? It's not. I cannot say it's an I expensive thing, you know. <laughs> category. I would put it in, it should be rightly put under mental health category, but because mental health is so still not, you know, assimilated with our culture that it's more of, you know, uh, upper level of medical support or medical help that you can get. So yeah, it's right. hierarchical in that way that it's, it's, it seems to be only a practice accessible to the middle upper class or the upper class people. Okay, during your question, it's, it's an expensive, uh, it, psychotherapy is expensive. And uh, as, as you said, you know, there's uh, it's just specific social classes that can apply, that can use it. And uh, for a majority of people, we live in a society which requires, um, which looks at psychotherapy as a normal thing currently. It used to be something that people uh, looked bad at, thinking that, well, there must be something wrong with the person if one attends uh, psychotherapy. 
Uh, currently, it's a little bit different. People uh, look at those uh, the therapists as those who help to uh, get through the day, help uh, to uh, heal specific traumas if they exist, or even for a general reason of self-understanding. And um, I believe that uh, one of the psychotherapies that, for example, I uh, I prioritize, and I believe that it's uh, uh, it's one of the best ways of uh, uh, self-examination, but in my opinion, is the existential therapy. Uh, for the reason, uh, one re first reason is that you don't necessarily have to have a proper therapist, so you don't have to pay money in order to uh, get existential therapy applied to yourself, because in the end of the day, you just need a second person who you can speak with, and it's about self-reflecting. So when you speak out loud, it can help you out. It's just there is a different ways of looking at it because one can say that well you know you can speak out loud to yourself stand in front of the mirror and speak to yourself but then it can seem to be a little bit psychotic uh, which is possible to say here but at the same time it can be also useful because you are reflecting um, the thinking process in your head to yourself so that's why i would say you just need someone who can listen to you. Of course, therapist is better because the job of the therapist is not just to listen, but also to pick out specific words to see uh, how, in fact, you pronounce them, in what context you're using, because every single word that you're saying is crucial and it can uh, bring out a lot of secret meanings that you didn't notice before. Because in specific situation, in traumatic situations, for example, when you're recalling them, you can use specific terminology that for you seem to be regular words, but in fact, they're, um, they're, they're signifiers of something that, is, uh, uh, that, that exists in your unconsciousness. Now, that, that's, my, that's why you need a professional therapist. And this is where talking to yourself or uh, having a friend or having someone uh, to speak with is um, not going to help out that much in comparison to speaking with the therapist. The emphasis on the word was first, you know, introduced by William James. So he was the guy who coined word association where a psychotherapist would name a certain event or object or subject, just words and whatever response the analyst would have on it, on each of those, he would note it down and try to psychologically understand where the origin or the nucleus of the neurosis lies in. So that was the remark to, you know, one of those word-based psychotherapies. But I advocate for integrative psychotherapy. So integrative psychotherapy, you know, takes its core, its core is that, you know, classical Freudian or even Lacanian uh, psychotherapy. So that's the basis of it. And then whatever the situation brings about, that is whatever the subject's case is, you take two or more different kinds of psychotherapies and you mix them and you get wonderful results out of them just because it's high on openness. So it allows you to openly associate one thing with the other. So a common com you know, combination would be psych psychodynamic therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy. 
or psychodynamic ther therapy with existential therapy. So these combinations would produce amazing results just because of the high on openness element. So what do you think about the, just the classic Freudian and to some extent, you know, concentrated Lacanian theory? Look, um, I mean, this is a challenging question because uh, as much as majority of people will say, well, Freud is a, a basic, uh, basic academic who introduced uh, psychology to us, you know, and introduced the understanding of psychotherapy. In fact, uh, he has a lot of challenging works, especially his early works, and they require a lot of interpretation. Uh, the second point is when you're speaking about Lacan, he, uh, in my understanding, he is not just even more challenging. He, his writings are, uh, you, you need to, uh, how to, you need to decode them. Uh, but once you decode them, you get a lot of information, which is useful because uh, the cool thing, the most useful thing in Lacan that I, that I understand is that he points out things uh, that we, we, we notice, but we don't pay attention to. Uh, and he's very precise on saying what actually is going on. The problem with him that I find is that he doesn't really give a solution. He, he just points out what exists. Um, Freud, he uh, compared, if you compare both of them, uh, I think that you need to have a very, very uh, concise understanding of the situation that you're applying them. Because in the end of the day, the classical Freudian approach, if you're thinking, if you're speaking about specific therapy and the Freudian spe specialist, I haven't personally experienced uh, that during the psychotherapy. I advocate for the contemporary where the therapist actually interacts with the analyst. And it's not just, there is no distance. One is allowed to uh, experience transference and counter-transference in my understanding. Because if this personal connection exists, then there is a possibility of getting somewhere in terms of uh, understanding what the person is feeling. And uh, th this, this is the reason why for me, for example, classical Freudian uh, therapy analysis seems a little bit old, old fashioned. Uh, even if we're taking the idea of how the therapy room is, uh, how everything is positioned in the therapy room, where one cannot, when the therapist doesn't look at the patient, when there is no eye contact, uh, where there is no proper dialogue, and it's mostly the analyst who is speaking and the therapist mostly listening and then making the conclusion. And this uh, seems a little bit uh, challenging for me, for example, as a person, because uh, I believe that for every single person, there should be a different therapy approach, which, which majority of them exist. That's why I cannot, for example, advocate for the idea of which therapy is better, Freudian or Lacanian or Jungian or anything like that. Because in the end of the day, uh, I think it's, it depends on a person, how the person is ready to um, work with the therapist. So Lacan is simply a return to Freud. And Lacan emphasized on this enough times. 
that reading him is basically returning to Freud, but rereading him in a manner that it has to be read in a particular manner. Like the way it is meant to be read, you harness that. And so that's why Lacan can be, you know, quite abstract sometimes, just because the rereading of the whole Freudian psychoanalysis is just very profound. And just because it's so profound, it makes you think that a certain concept as, you know, just like even just as like a certain concept like unconscious is so, so, so emphasized in Lacan and in the way, you know, how the unconscious is always unknown and it is the territory of the unknown. So one of the things that psychodynamic psychotherapy does is that it bases, at first it starts out by examining the person's self through ego, then the pers personality, which is always there because it is the mask of the ego. And so then the personality and through the personality, you get to their childhood neuroses, if any. And after those neuroses, already you're on, on the way. That's the road to the unconscious. And so at one point, you will be able to reveal where the point of your neurosis lies. So it's a very obviously theoretical-based psychotherapy model because when you compare it to cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is more empirical. It's more based on assessments rather than just, you know, reading a person's feelings and thoughts and all their interpretations all together. So there's all these different kinds of psychotherapies and sometimes existential psychotherapy can be confused for psychodynamic ther therapy because psychodynamic therapy is so vast. It's so, it's almost, you know, in, present in all sorts of psychotherapies and minimal amounts. And so when you take existential therapy, existential therapy is more about making you feel good about your life in an esoteric sense. So how mindful you can be of be existing, how living is a gift. So it's, you know, in a way it's good for terminally in ill patients or cancer patients or whatever. So there's like all these different kinds of psychotherapy, but point being that if you integrate all these different psychotherapies with each other, you have the opportunity to work so freely that you can literally implement at least one or two elements from every different kinds of models and see what the results brings about. So are you, because like people can confuse existential psychotherapy with having philosophical foundations because it's based on existential history. So what do you think about existentialism and, and psychotherapy? Hmm. I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? Go ahead. Fantastic. Um, look, I mean, re uh, returning to the ideas that you uh, explained about Lacan, I mean, look, 
Um, the thing which I, uh, I, I did enjoy reading Lacan at certain moment, although, uh, as I said before, I find it too cryptic. But once you decrypt it, then it becomes easier because, for example, uh, of course, Lacan is correlated to Freud when we're speaking about Freud, you know, we're speaking about the three parts of the psych, when we're speaking about ID, ego, superego, and in Lacan, you know, about the symbolic register, of course. And the symbolic register, you know, it exists of three parts which is very uh, similar. It's the symbolic order that correlates uh, our desire. It's the real, which is the our need. And then there is the imaginary part, which is our demand for anything. And then we, we, we can read it any, any other way. Like Han, for example, he proposes that the real is the unchangeable and authentic truth that exists within us. And this is the job of the psychotherapist to, you know, to capture those moments, because at the same time, uh, the real can be only experienced as a trauma, you know, uh, and um, because there is a there's a gap between the conscious imaginary and then the conscious symbolic. And one when you're choosing, for example, any specific psychotherapist, you have to uh, understand that if you choose a specific ther th uh, therapy, uh, then you have to pay attention to all of those small bits uh, that exist within the patient. In my understanding, it doesn't matter what kind of therapy uh, approach you choose, you just have to be experienced in it in order to properly analyze the patient. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to find all those small things so, uh, which basically constitute the problem within the person. Um, that, that's at least my understanding of it. Um, and returning to the understanding of uh, existential therapies, I mean, uh, my understanding of existentialism, uh, I think I wouldn't even refer to the idea that you have to uh, be very into existentialism in order to understand existential therapy. It's the idea that you have to be open to uh, own self. Because majority of time, we unfortunately um, don't discuss specific things that uh, exist in our world. We run away from them. And this is something that existential, this, this is something why I do enjoy existential therapy. Um, because in the end of the day, when you're speaking about existentialist, you, of course, you can speak about Nietzsche. And... Um, you know, you can follow from Nietzsche to Foucault, even though majority of people will say it's not, he's not a really existentialist, but at the same time, he's saying a very important aspect of us recounting what was in the history, uh, us recounting what was there at specific point of time. And this part of recounting is crucial because once we uh, start recounting something, we, we, we shouldn't run away from it. This is the, this is the same way our trauma works. Uh, let's say if something happened to me in my childhood and uh, it's within me, I never examined it. So obviously it's repressed. I have to examine this part. And in order to examine it, of course, um, therapist might help me to get to this point, but it purely depends on me. That's why I would say that only if I have a true desire to understand what uh, is going on in, in me, and it's not the question of whether it is wrong or right to examine my own self, it's the question of understanding uh, that it is crucial to completely uh, discover your true self, as Winnicott would put it.
because there is nothing more challenging than discovering what your true desires are and what your uh, true self is in the end of the day. Especially when we're living in the community where everything uh, dictates the way we're supposed to operate. Uh, we're trying to be, uh, we, we have this herd immunity and we, we believe that uh, we should do like everyone else. We're not trying to be authentic. And uh, this authentic truth, if we're returning to the idea of Lacan, uh, this authentic truth about oneself uh, should also exist. And it always correlates with something uh, that we experienced before uh, and is definitely, it, it'll probably be repressed in us if we are trying to hide it hide away. So it requires a lot of bravery in order to get to this point and confess that this happened, this is what I can learn from it. And any experience, no matter if it is bad or good, you know, it's an experience that uh, exists within us. And this experience, actually is our true self. This is what we are. It's just a bunch of experiences that happen to us. And then we can really, then we can understand if uh, we need those experiences or not. Majority of people continue living their life without recognizing that um, there is a hard truth about every single other person. And the most important aspect is to learn this, this truth, just even for yourself. You don't have to confess it to someone else, but as soon as you know that this happened and uh, this is you, then everything becomes much easier. So that's my understanding of you don't need any philosophical basis in order to uh, approach existential therapy. It's just basically being truthful to yourself and not trying to pretend to be someone else, not trying to pretend that this any action or some, any experience has never happened to you and just accept it. So it, it is a psychoanalytic revival of the repressed moment, which seems to be the aim of any kind of psychotherapeutic relationship. So, and also like going back to Lacan again, what do you think about the, so the triad the Borromean knot of imaginary, symbolic, and real. Going back to that, what do you think about the knot between the imaginary, imaginary and the symbolic? I mean, when, when we're speaking about three parts of Lacanian psych, I think it's uh, important just to quickly tie uh, three parts together. And in fact, I have, um, I written a work about it and uh, it's I remember, I think it can go something like that, that um, if we're going to the real idea, it's the unchangeable truth. Uh, and uh, it's not just opposed to the imaginary. It's just the formation of ego articulating, and it articulates ego in specific way. You can say that the category of the imaginary provides the theoretical basis for a long-standing polemic, um, polemic against the ego psychology, you know. Uh, but it is also at the same time like uh, located beyond the symbolic. So you can imagine the three rings that, uh, how to say it, they intersect, I think this is right. Yeah, they intersect each other and they all, they all are one. So it's three different parts, but they're at the same time, they're one part. So I think that's uh, my understanding. 
you might know that there's a popular in popular culture there's a book by Dan Brown about inferno not exactly inferno it's it's a it's a symbolism for the inferno by Dante so it uses you know Dante's text as fundamental to solving the particular mystery that is solving in the book so that's where you know most of the modern interest or modern identification work comes from and so what do you think about Dante's Inferno because it's a classic of course and in all the contos and all the diagrams of spiraling down what do you think about it well I have to ask you a question when you're referring to Dante's Inferno are you referring to his trip to Inferno or are you referring to the to the divine comedy that or comedy because it was named comedy in the beginning and then it was named divine comedy because that's how it works the divine comedy okay so that's and when you're speaking about specific illustrations because there have been a variety of different uh, authors, well, not authors, artists who actually created illustrations. For example, we can look at um, probably the most contemporary one, Dali, uh, Salvador Dali, or we can look at uh, probably the most famous artist who drew illustration, and probably that's who you're referring to is Gustave Duroux, right? Because you're probably speaking about the famous illustration, The Falling of the Demon, right? Yeah, it is the latter, yeah. Yeah, that, that's Gustave Duroux. So, um, well, okay, so we identified those two parts. What's you, you want me to answer what I think about in terms of Divine Comedy and then the Dan Brown's book Inferno? No, just the Divine Comedy, fundamentally. Oh, right, because I, I would never compare the two of them because one is the classic, the epic, that there is no many epics that exist in the world. And this is one of the uh, epics that has influenced uh, generations. And Dan Brown book is just a personally successful book, which is great. I mean, I, I have read it, read it, it's fun, you know. Uh, I enjoyed it to, uh, as much as I could, but uh, uh, this is not something that you can call a literature masterpiece. It's yes. a commercial masterpiece because you know, it had uh, the biggest amount of sales. I think, yeah, it still has the record, right? So that's why I put it under the popular science theme, that under popular culture, you might know Inferno from Dan Brown's Inferno, the book, the novel. It's definitely a pop cultural book and it def definitely doesn't uh, correlate to uh, what uh, um, Alighieri wrote in his uh, epic. I think this is uh, a very challenging epic that majority of people should read. I would recommend it, although uh, you cannot read it just fully. It's not something that, it's something that you can enjoy, sit down next to your fireplace with a glass of whiskey or wine and uh, just read one of the pages, you know. You, you don't need to read it uh, page by page because every single canto has, uh, has something that you can examine. There is something new that you can always uh, derive from it. And there is so many illusions that exist that create the beauty that is just fascinating. Um, even starting from the idea how his favorite uh, author who also wrote the epic, Anide, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, 
I'm speaking about Virgil here, uh, leading him through the uh, Inferno as his mentor, as how he imagined him, just starting from this moment, uh, the love story that exists between him and Beatrice, um, the idea how he had to, um, the, from the point of when he enters the Inferno, where the words that he has to forget everything and prepare for death. There are a lot of secret meanings, allusions, uh, and you have to read between the lines in order to completely understand it. Um, I believe that um, current, in current times, uh, this book can, this epic can actually be something that uh, in, should inspire people. Because in the end of the day, you can, you, we don't have to obviously go through the inferno, but this journey is just, it's an adventure that all of us take. And we can always refer it to, to our lives, to the way our life uh, can be. You know, there is many moments when we're in despair, when we're exper experiencing uh, terrible, terrible circumstances and we don't know what to do. And uh, such epic can show us uh, that there is much more than just being dreadful because in the end of the day, there was this hero who went through hell and literally emerged victorious. And uh, I think this is something impossible to do. And only a couple of heroes that exist in literature did this. One of them was also Odysseus in uh, Odyssey, written by Homer, because he went down to hell and he returned, even though he nearly lost his life there. And um, hell, even from, from the Homeric epic, we can see how dreadful and disgusting the place is, that it is everlasting pit of fire that brings only uh, negative emotions. It shows that what happens with our souls, especially at this magnificent moment when, he, when Odysseus tries to hug his own mother and he cannot do it. Because when you die, your flesh dies with you and all is left is the soul. So there is no physical contact. There is no physical warmth that one can experience. And um, I think that um, all of those epics that we've been speaking about, uh, they constitute uh, a specific literature er era that um, all of them from different eras, of course, they, they give a lot of perspective, perspectives of how life should be lived. Because in the end of the day, I think all of them speaking about one, one of the main ideas is that life is a constant journey. No matter what journey it is, it is a journey that one should embrace um, and live through and see what happens. Because in the end of the day, all of those heroes, uh, they, and I'm not speaking about how they emerged victorious or not, but they, there was certainly a change in, uh, uh, in the way they've been living life. And I'm not, even I'm, when I'm speaking about Achilles, who in the Iliad was a brave warrior who had enormous, enormous pathos where he was thinking, where he was presented as this brave, arrogant warrior who was uh, later on in the book, a killing machine, who stood against the gods, who uh, defined his own will, and in the end of the day, heroically died. Uh, was remembered in history like he wanted, but then um, uh, when Odysseus meets him in hell, you know, a man says that there is nothing better than being alive. And I think this is the point. 
that no matter how hard your life becomes, you, you just need to go through the journey because in the end of the day, there is just life and then there is death. And when death occurs, that that's the, I wouldn't call this the ending point, the, but this is an, an ending point of life for sure. So we definitely see uh, Homerian influence over Virgil's or Dante's texts. And so I was wondering, so like how in certain philosophical works, people often take the Greek or the Roman mythologies as a way or as a metaphor to explain their philosophies. So like the myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. So where he takes the myth of Sisyphus from the Greek mythology where Sisyphus is basically punished to roll a piece of giant piece of stone over a hill for eternity by Hades in hell. So we see that as a metaphor that we every day wake up and engage in the same activities more or less and keep going throughout the lifespan of our lives. So that's one philosophy where we see the overlapping or the using mythology as a metaphor. So are there any specific philosophical conceptualizations or ideas where you feel like there's an Homerian influence or an influence from any of the Greek or the Roman mythologies? Can you repeat your question? So do you see do you see any particular philosophical argument, model, work or text which is influenced from one of these ancient mythologies or they use these mythologies as a metaphor to explain their philosophy? And if you find any of these in the text that you've read or you find any particular one interesting? Well, uh I mean, I think all the Roman or Greek mythology is relatively interesting in the end of the day. Uh, it is based on, it has a lot of life lessons that we should pay attention to. And in the end of the day, when we're speaking about myth of Sisyphus, you know, uh, there is majority, there is different ways of how we can look at it. Uh, we can look at it from what you do, you will always lose. And, uh, you, you know, you'll have to take this huge boulder up again. And then when you get it to the top, it will go down again. And this is like a never ending uh, challenge. Uh, from one perspective, you can look at it as, uh, you know, a circle of which Nietzsche was des uh, des describing this destruction. Everything comes to a natural end and then you have to start over. Uh, you can look at it as, you know, majority of people interpret it as it doesn't matter what you do, you will fail. So why would you try? That's first perspective, but I think this is relatively wrong and this is where a majority of people misunderstood Nietzsche. I think the idea is that of course, everything will come to its natural end. The same with our life, it comes to natural end. But if we know that our life will come to a natural end, the same concerns about existential therapy. Because one of the main fears is where people understand that at certain moment we encounter the understanding of death. What it is death? and that it will happen to us. And the scariest thing is that we don't know when it will happen or how it will happen. Um, and majority of people ask themselves the first question, why, why would you, you know, 
try to do something if in the end of the day the ending is the same for everyone um that the same can be applied to Camus or what Nietzsche was saying but I think the point here is of course the ending would be the same it would be death and uh, uh you can't do anything about it it's it is the beautiful point of it that's what Greeks were looking in as well you know it's something that uh it's the most beautiful exit out of this life this is something that you should embrace and this is the only correct way of looking at it um because in the end of the day you know that it will end but you don't know when so it's this magnificent moment and you can do it like a hero or you know you can just uh be miser uh, you can be in misery and you can live your entire life scared of something you uh never know what it is and it's this is the same way uh for example i forgot what's um the name of the philosopher well i know in russian it's called epicur but uh, his approach was why would you be scared of something that you never encountered that's what i be also believe you can refer to the nietzsche's uh, philosophy um the idea is to of course everything will come to a natural end but when it will come this is a moment when you can evolve as a human being because this is a moment when you back at the starting point um but you have to stand up again and create something new so it only promotes a constant um understanding of creation you have to create constantly in order to strive in this life to be active because that i think and i believe this is the right way of approaching the life because then you can live it fully you have to say yes to majority of things or mainly even to all of the things because you have you have to try everything otherwise you will not get enough experience and um that's what i think greek mythology te teaches us of how to be clever even the idea of uh, Odysseus returning to Odysseus and how he escaped the cyclops by saying that his name is nobody which was a comic approach to uh, life as well in terms of when the cyclops was shouting for help you know to so either cyclops can help him out and uh, they ask him like who who you being attacked by and he's answering nobody and this clever approach is uh signifies the idea of how you know we should approach life we should be smarter about it and we should not be scared of something that uh, hasn't happened yet you know we can all we obviously be scared and then begin a metaphor that the cyclops might eat you but then and abandon any possible try of try of escaping one because no one did it doesn't mean that you can't do it and this is what Odysseus shows us that you know you have to be uh you have to experience all the pleasure from the giving life because you're already living it as soon as you abandon all the possibilities of striving of succeeding of trying to emerge victorious then the fate turns away from you and of course i believe that fate doesn't depend on if we're speaking about greek mythology it will be said that everything is dependent on gods you know but fate is so dependent on you because you define your own fate and um i think that's one of the main lessons that you should uh, look at in the in the greek mythology and the same with the the myth uh the kemus story of course yeah you will take this boulder up and up but it's just an ever ending for example journey that in my understanding is a great thing because once something ends it ends then what you do you either stop and you just stare into a abyss of nothingness or you try to create something new 
And I think this is the beauty that is given to human being uh, an ability to create something. So perhaps a side effect of the existential thought is pessimism. So a reference work being Schopenhauer's studies on pessimism. And so Carl Jung talks about how Soren Kierkegaard's work is so existentialist that it's neurotic. And so he criticizes Kierkegaard in his collected works, volume nine, part one, and deems it with the term Kierkegaardian neurosis. So we always see, you know, these confluence of two different thoughts very often. And that's how we have the existential therapy between the confluence, because of the confluence between philosophy, existentialism and psychology, psychotherapy. And so is there any, what kind of thinkers do you think cross a certain level of abstraction in their philosophical works? And if you think, you know, there are certain thinkers, what do you find unique about them? Or what, what is your criticism against them? Yes. I mean, every philosopher is abstract in the end of the day. There is, um, I mean, you can, of course, say Schopenhauer is not abstract. He's like, he, he's saying what it is. And you can say the same about Nietzsche. But in the end of the day, I think a majority of philosophers are uh, speaking an abstract language. It's just that's it. When in philosophy, in my understanding, when you given in a concrete example of something, everything becomes much more confusing. That that's how philosophy works because you, you in ab the abstraction gives the person an understanding of and what what way you can think, you know. And uh, I think this is um, my answer to that because every single philosopher that you can possibly take. Um, is speaking to specific, it's never, it gives you a complete, complete explicit, you know, opinion about something. Apart from specific ones, as I mentioned, such as Schopenhauer, uh, even Foucault, Foucault gives a very uh, explicit and concise answer, but his writings are, uh, they're a little bit confusing. You have to uh, understand what he's specifically writing about, but it's very contextualized because he's speaking about a specific moment in time in history. So you definitely know what, what he's referring to. Uh, but at the same time, you can derive a lot of interpretations or ideas out of it. Uh, the same, uh, probably the most famous example of um, Karl Marx and his uh, book Capital, Capitalism. Yeah, in, in Russian, it's called Capital, but. Uh, there, there are so many different interpretation, interpretations of it. And I think this is uh, what uh, philosophy is about. It's the way you interpret it. Because then you derive the beauty out of it. It's the same, was, uh, the same idea with art. The artist who paints a painting, you know, doesn't tell you exactly what, uh, what, what it is behind, what, what, what's behind the meaning or what is the meaning of it. It's usually an expression of one, uh, emotions, perhaps unconsciousness, consciousness, depending on the school of, uh, uh, on, on, on the school of paintings they, they, they are applying, uh, you know, uh, but then it purely depends on the audience. The audience makes uh, sense out of it. And if you put 10 or 100 people and ask their opinions, what they think about this specific painting, you know, 
every single one will probably give you a different interpretation if you don't tell them a specific background. Because as soon as you define something, people will think in this specific uh, way. That's what I mean when uh, I'm speaking about concrete example, because when you give a concrete example, people start thinking in this marginalized idea of where this concrete example stands. So I need to give a concrete, I, I need to give more examples related to this sphere. But if it is abstract, you know, there is no right or wrong answer. Hence, you can give examples of every single sphere that you can relate to possibly. Okay, so you said that, you know, Foucault's ideas can be tricky sometimes to understand. So yeah, and you decided to get to ask me about Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> Who does that? Just to say, when I said Foucault's idea challenging, <laughs> you say, well, what about this hardest, hardest, you know, and most challenging philosopher that exists in the world? And then the next question would be, oh, what do you think about Stephen Hawking and his you know, and uh, then there might be, what do you think of dark matter and string theory? Do it look like a fucking Sheldon Cooper to you? Sonic, super string theory. Wow. Yeah, like I'm not going to discuss, uh, yeah, I'm not going to discuss the, you know, the asymmetry that exists in the quantum world. No, but I'm not asking you at any quantum level. What I'm asking you now is that what do you, like when you say that Foucault's text could be confusing or tricky sometimes, to contextualize because of the way he works with the time, like the whole phenomena of time. So what do you mean by that? Like if you could expand more on it, that would be great. So you want me to explain the idea of uh, Foucault and the, his contextualized meaning? Yes. Well, I mean, he's spe he's specifically speaking about uh, a specific phenomenon that existed in specific point in time. So when we're speaking about, for example, the repressive hypothesis, or when the, our understanding of sexual identity happened, he's speaking about, for example, the let's say, Middle Ages from the moment where it started happening, from the moment when the churches were, for example, uh, putting constraints on our understanding of the world. So giving the norms of what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a private marriage between man and a woman for a reason of procreation. Anything that deviates from it is a, a disease, for example. It's, it's a sinful, uh, perverted disease that should not exist. And then uh, they were the idea of medical institutions, which were qualifying until a specific time in the 19th century that, well, you know, oh, it's a disease, it's an illness. There is something wrong with the person if one is uh, enjoying, not just enjoying a society, but in, in fact feels love and uh, feels physical attraction to a man, you know? And I think this is what I'm speaking about because Foucault just argues the idea that, well, everything happens in history in specific point in time because then there is other ones who uh, say that everything is universal. For example, we, we, we have those philosophers, those thinkers like uh, Enola Kant, and he is arguing that there is universal ethics and morals. And uh, I think Foucault is arguing about, against, uh, about, against the idea of, well, there cannot be universal laws, you know, there is, it cannot be, there is no point in time where something can be universal. Everything uh, is related to specific point in time. It can last for a specific period, but then it will end. It can repeat itself, of course, 
but there is no universal approach to something. And that, that, that's what I mean in terms of him focusing on something specific, because of course he is not gonna, if Foucault was alive, and if he would be looking at the current times, he would be looking specifically at the 21st century in terms of what is going on in 2020, for example, or 2021. He's not going to be speaking about how this, how our time currently, you know, is he can speak about how our, our current time is an image in terms of us repeating the history of what was all the events which were, let's say, 200 years ago. But of course, he will be paying attention to it because I think he is arguing for the idea of we should learn from history. We should see that this happened. And if it happened, it, it might have a different name. But in the end of the day, it will lead to a specific certain result. That's why we have to escape those roots and stop doing what we were doing before. And if we do it, then there might be something new. And the same uh, when he was describing the sexuality, because he himself belonged to this, as he called, peripheral sexuality. And he experienced himself what was going on during the times where there were law prohibitions, where there were legal restrictions for those who were anything else than heterosexual. He understood, and I think this is uh, the point that we need to refer to, the, this specific moment in time. So how does Rubin and the other philosopher, Judith Butler, differ from this viewpoint of his? Well, I mean, when you, you're speaking about Judith Butler, right? Can you repeat the question? I'm sorry, I'm getting tons of messages. So if you're going to compare and contrast between the last person you talked about with Judith Butler, I mean, that's the butler that you're reading, right? And Ruben? Yes, yes. I'm focusing mo mostly on Ruben, though. So how do they differ from this other last person that you talked about? Well, I'm comparing Ruben and Foucault. Ruben was basically occupying a very specific, very similar position to Foucault, except she was arguing, uh, she, she's an American anthropologist, and she was arguing the idea, well, she's, she's arguing the idea, she's still alive, um, the idea of uh, she was pointing out specific things such as sexual essentialism and sexual hierarchies that exist within our society and the way we should, you know, battle them and not even battle them, but she was uh, implementing the Foucault ideas of how we should uh, battle or resist against them because you can resist against them, but then it will just create more oppressions, you know, uh, but then uh, there is a specific ways of liberating it and this liberation is by experimenting with our own bodies and this is the way we can actually liberate ourselves from uh, those categories and not actually label something, but in fact, just exist uh, as uh, ju just exist in our own bodies, experimenting, showing what being. And Butler and uh, Rubin, she argues for the idea that well, you know, there is specific institutions that try to uh, like try to shape our actions and the way we uh, do everything in our everyday life. Uh, try to show specific norms what we should uh, um, relate to. And she was just saying that uh, she was just saying that in the end of the day, um, those norms are related just to specific modes of power, not modes of power, but regimes of power that use it as a tool to distract from specific problems, let's say, with, which exist in, in the state. 
And you know, those problems that can exist within state can be different. They can be a political manner, they can be a religious manner, they can be, for example, a corruption, you know. And uh, when we putting all the emphasis on the discourse on sex, when we're saying, well, you know, there is many problems that the state has. We don't have the money, we don't have uh, we don't have the money, then there are those who steal the money that work in the government, then there are those who don't obey the law, and then suddenly you say, well, you know, but then there is a greater problem. It all happens because those homosexuals, you know, uh, they uh, influence our children, they, in fact, they, they become the scapegoats. And I'm speaking not just about homosexuals, but I'm speaking about major minorities. And you can see this happening in different states throughout the world. And the scapegoating is... Uh, um, similar, it is a little bit different from what Foucault was saying, but this is one of the axioms that exist within our world. It's the fallacy that exists because people don't see how it actually works. They just go along with the information that is fed to them without thinking about it. So that, that's a homing point of argument. No, that was definitely a very interesting reflection. So it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Mark. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on the podcast. All right. Take care. All right. You too.